Shoes and Stockings, a collection of short stories by Louisa May Alcott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Francis. My Red Cap, Part 1, by Louisa May Alcott. He who serves well need not fear to ask his wages. It was under a blue cap that I first saw the honest face of Joe Collins. In the third year of the late war, a Maine regiment was passing through Boston on its way to Washington. The common was all alive with troops, and the spectators who clustered round them to say Godspeed as the brave fellows marched away to meet danger and death for our sakes. Every one was eager to do something, and, as the men stood at ease, the people mingled freely with them, offering gifts, hearty grips of the hand, and hopeful prophecies of victory in the end. Irresistibly attracted, my boy Tom and I drew near, and soon, becoming excited by the scene, ravaged the fruit-stands in our neighborhood for tokens of our regard, mingling candy and congratulations, peanuts and prayers, apples and applesauce, in one enthusiastic jumble. While Tom was off on his third raid, my attention was attracted by a man who stood a little apart, looking as if his thoughts were far away. All the men were fine, stalwart fellows, as Maine men usually are, but this one overtopped his comrades, standing straight and tall as a Norway pine, with a face full of the mingled shrewdness, sobriety, and self-possession of the typical New Englander. I liked the look of him, and seeing that he seemed solitary, even in a crowd, I offered him my last apple with a word of interest. The keen blue eyes met mine gratefully and the apple began to vanish in vigorous bites as we talked, for no one thought of ceremony at such a time. "'Where are you from?' "'Woolwich, ma'am.' "'Are you glad to go?' "'Well, there's two sides to that question. "'I calculate to do my duty, and do it hearty, "'but it is rough on a feller leaving his folks for good, maybe.' There was a sudden huskiness in the man's voice that was not Appleskin's, though he tried to make believe that it was. I knew a word about home would comfort him, so I went on with my questions. "'Is it very hard? Do you leave a family?' "'My old mother, a sick brother, and—Lucindy.' The last word was uttered in a tone of intense regret— and his brown cheek reddened as he added hastily to hide some embarrassment. "'You see, Jim went last year, and got pretty well used up, so I felt as if I'd ought to take my turn now. Mother was a regular old hero about it, and I dropped everything and come off. Lucindy didn't think it was my duty, and that made it awful hard, I tell you.' "'Wives are less patriotic than mothers,' I began, but he would not hear Lucindy blamed, and said quickly, 
she ain't my wife yet, but we calculated to be married in a month or so, and it was worse for her than me. Women lot so on not being disappointed. I couldn't shrink, and here I be. When I get to work, I shall be all right. The first wrench is the tryin' part. Here he straightened his broad shoulders and turned his face toward the flags fluttering far in front, as if no backward look should betray the longing of his heart for mother, home, and wife. I liked that little glimpse of character, and when Tom returned with empty hands, reporting that every stall was exhausted, I told him to find out what the man would like best, then run across the street and get it. I know without asking. Give us your purse and I'll make him as happy as a king, said the boy, laughing, as he looked up admiringly at our tall friend, who looked down on him with an elder brotherly air pleasant to see. While Tom was gone, I found out Joe's name and business, promised to write and tell his mother how finally the regiment went off, and was just expressing a hope that we might meet again, for I too was going to the war as a nurse, when the order to fall in came rolling down the ranks, and the talk was over. Fearing Tom would miss our man in the confusion, I kept my eye on him till the boy came rushing up with a packet of tobacco in one hand and a good supply of cigars in the other. Not a romantic offering, certainly, but a very acceptable one, as Joe's face proved, as we scrambled these treasures into his pockets, all laughing at the flurry, while less fortunate comrades helped us, with an eye to a share of these fragrant luxuries by and by. There was just time for this, a hearty shake of the big hand, and a grateful, "'Good-bye, ma'am.' Then the word was given, and they were off. Bent on seeing the last of them, Tom and I took a short-cut, and came out on the wide street down which so many troops marched that year. And mounting some high steps, we watched for our man, as we already called him. As the inspiring music, the grand tramp, drew near. The old shrill went through the crowd. The old cheer broke out. But it was a different scene now than in the first enthusiastic, hopeful days. Young men and ardent boys filled the ranks then, brave by instinct, burning with loyal zeal, and blissfully unconscious of all that lay before them. Now the blue coats were worn by mature men, some gray, all grave and resolute, husbands and fathers, with the memories of wives and children tugging at their heartstrings, homes left desolate behind them, and before them the grim certainty of danger, hardship, and perhaps the lifelong helplessness worse than death. Little of the glamour of romance about the war now. They saw it as it was, a long, hard task, and here were the men to do it well. Even the lookers-on were different now. Once all was wild enthusiasm and glad uproar. Now men's lips were set, and women's smileless as they cheered. Fewer handkerchiefs whitened the air, for wet eyes needed them, 
and sudden lulls, almost solemn in their stillness, followed the acclamations of the crowd. All watched with quickened breath, and brave souls that living wave blew below and bright with a steely glitter above, as it flowed down the street and away to distant battlefields already stained with precious blood. There he is, the outside man, and tallest of the lot. Give him a cheer, Auntie. He sees us and remembers, cried Tom, nearly tumbling off his perch, as he waved his hat and pointed out Joe Collins. Yes, there he was, looking up with a smile on his brave brown face, my little nosegay in his buttonhole, a suspicious bulge in the pocket close by, and doubtless a comfortable quid in his mouth to cheer the weary march. How like an old friend he looked, though we had only met fifteen minutes ago. How glad we were to be there to smile back at him and send him on his way feeling that, even in a strange city, there was someone to say, God bless you, Joe. We watched the tallest blue cap till it vanished, and then went home in a glow of patriotism, Tom to long for his turn to come, I to sew vigorously on the gray gown the new nurse burned to wear as soon as possible, and both of us to think and speak often of poor Joe Collins and his Lucindy. All this happened long ago, but it is well to recall those stirring times to keep fresh the memory of sacrifices made for us by men like these, to see to it that the debt we owe them is honestly, gladly paid, and while we decorate the graves of those who died, to remember also those who still live and deserve our grateful care. End of Part 1